Kevin, tell those European men to give more aid like they say they would. Kevin, tell your powerful mates in the G8 that payment is late and 1.4 billion people wait. First Coloni, you're a phony, Sarkozy knows he's got it wrong. Poverty need not be. Welcome to the first show of MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals. You're here with uh, Don Billings and Dan Pedrick. Dan, how are you doing? Very well, Dom. Pleasure to be here. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Dan, uh, I said I wouldn't do this straight off the, thing, the bat, but um, what are the Millennium Development Goals for, for our, our uneducated listeners? Yep, so... Um, what we're going to be looking at over the course of this show is um, a series of eight goals that were created uh, essentially to look at world development. Yep. Um, they were, uh, I guess, a continuation of a bunch of projects that previously existed um, and then were, I guess, uh, crystallised at the, Deva- the Millennium Conference. Yes, at the Millennium Summit in September 2000. Yep. Um, and how long do we have to go before the, uh, the Millennium Goals are to be achieved? The Millennium Development Goals, rather. Not long. Not long. <laughs> so we've got until uh, 2015 yeah. to uh, have them completed. And um, last year, in, in 2010, they were uh, there was a conference held to mark, I guess, the, a decade yep. since they'd been put in place yep. and to review what kind of progress had been made thus far. Yeah. So... Across the like the majority, I suppose you'd say of these eight goals, there's eight eight goals, and we'll um, outline those uh, shortly. But um, across the majority of them, they're not really being met t- too well. No, that's no. right. I think um, there's been instances, as we'll probably uh, find out, you know, as we go into them in a little bit more depth. Yeah, there's been some areas of the goals that I think have been uh, some good progress has been yeah, made. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Uh, there's been other areas of the goals where. Uh, not a lot of progress has been made. Yeah. And there's certain areas of the world um, that I'd probably argue that have uh, struggled to make a lot of progress yeah. across all the goals. I suppose we should say straight off the bat because I think it will be a highlight, highlighted rather um, across the course of the um, of our program is that sub-Saharan Africa is, is that really big one and it will be a continual focus, I think, throughout the show. Just um, That's for a range of reasons, um, geographical, political, whole bunch of things but um that'll be a really interesting one to um see also south asia to it to some degree as well is um but not on the scale of sub-saharan africa but um yeah, yeah. definitely i think um what we're going to see recurring in a lot of these goals is um figures coming through from east asia which yep, are uh, showing a lot of yeah. improvement um due to i guess large-scale economic improvements in those regions and yep. like you said not being met in um, yeah. some other regions of the world, especially sub-Saharan Africa. I suppose in that sense, uh, one thing that will be kind of interesting, uh, whether we um, kind of delve into this or not, is that China obviously is leading that that in East Asia, but also to the degree um, in this century and probably this decade as well, how China will perhaps bring up sub-Saharan Africa as opposed to, uh, you know, if, if the rest of the world, the world kind of isn't possibly going to meet some of these goals that China, um, through investment in Africa, is actually causing some really um, great results sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, for their own interests, I guess, as well, but it's, it's working both ways. Mm. There's some interesting stuff at the moment with, um, especially when you're looking at agriculture, uh, very industrialised, westernised countries or, yeah. you know, growing economies in the east 
are um, investing quite a bit in poorer countries and less developed countries. Yeah. Um, a lot of it due to land space yeah. restrictions and um, and labour and all of this kind of stuff. So I guess one thing that we'll probably explore throughout the the course of this program is maybe the the potential positive and maybe negative effects that some of that investment can have yeah. and some of that, uh, I guess, uh, you know, internal um, kind of intervention can have into yeah. some of those areas. So beautiful. So we'll just quickly outline the um, the eight goals that the um, that were agreed to on the Millennium Summit. We'll obviously touch on these um, continually throughout the course of the series, but just quickly, we've got um, one is um, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, two, achieve universal primary education, three, promote gender equality and empower women, four, reduce child mortality, five, improve maternal health, six, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria and other diseases, uh, seven, ensure environmental sustainability, and eight, uh, global partnership for development. Obviously, that's a, that's a bit much to just um, just cop over your airwaves, but... Um, yeah, if, if, if you'd like a, a very clear, concise, and, and visual representation of those goals, if you go onto the um, the Millennium Development Goals um, website, just by googling that, um, there's, there's, there's some nice um, there's some nice visuals. We've got um, for number four, we've we've got a, t- a teddy. A, a teddy. For, uh, for, for number five, improve maternal health. We've got um, a, w- a pregnant woman that seemingly conceived um, a love heart. And um, for, for number eight, uh, the Global Partnership for Development, it seems like we've got um, Siamese quadruplets. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm yeah. all for that. No, I, I, do, I do believe that um, Siamese quadruplets are the answer to um, achieving a global partnership for development. So... Uh, hopefully we reach that by um by 2015. Yeah, that's true. It's a realistic strategy, I think. <laughs> it is. Um, also, just uh, one thing I want to touch on while we're um kind of overviewing the um the goals as, as a whole is that most of a lot of the the measures of these goals um uh, are measured by um kind of halving certain things like halving percentages and whatnot. And generally, most of the time, they've been um taken from 1990. So if if we wanted to, for instance. Um, uh, have extreme poverty. Those dates that they're setting that from is from 1990. So we want to have those. Yeah, yeah. As I was as I was saying before, a lot of these uh, goals were taken as sort of a continuation of other projects that were out there. Yep. Um, some of those beginning around 1990, and I think also um, draws a little bit of a, a parallel to um, Kyoto. Um, yep. trying to meet emission standards, yep. which were started at a baseline of 1990 as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably the strength of these goals when they were actually um, agreed upon is that they are very clear and measurable, Yeah. which I think is, is something... Would you say achievable as well, from your from your understanding? Um, that's a really tough question. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that we can answer that question yeah. in the course of uh, eight episodes. <laughs> one, one thing I want to sort of add to that is that um, basically, in order for them to be achievable, um, it was basically set that um, if the, the countries that considered the developing countries, if you like, um, pretty much most of the countries that fit into the OECD, you might have seen that in the newspaper, what have you. I think it's the Organisation for Economic Development. They're a group of, oh, I think it's it's around about... 20, 22 maybe countries um, from the developing world. You're talking Eastern Europe, um, North America, Australia, New Zealand, that sort of thing, probably Japan and Korea also. Um, these very developed countries, um, basically if all of those were to meet a level of, um, of foreign aid um, of 0.7% of their GDP, GDP being the... Gross domestic product. Yep, which yep. is basically um, in layman's terms is... The, the amount of money a, a country makes, is, is that 
Is that mm, yeah, essentially. Yeah? Um, yeah, essentially the income. Yeah. Of, so, of, so basically, yeah, the amount of income that um, each developing country made was 0.7%, which is less than 1%. So think about, I guess, if you apply that to an individual like yourselves out there, um, if you paid 0.7% of what you make, that could basically achieve the Millennium Development Goals. So far, I think, straight off the bat, I think five European countries, some of those like Scandinavian ones, there's really developed, really fantastic places. <laughs> those ones that have, just have everything sorted, you know, yeah. You sort of, yeah. Um, they've, they've met it. And I think a couple of other European countries are committed to or like are on their way, I think maybe France and the UK. But there are some places like, uh, some places are, are well off. Yes. Yeah. Um, US is one of those. Australia is also one of those. I think uh, we'll touch on this later on in the program, but I think um, Australia is aiming to get it by 2015. But I'm not sure if it'll be before then. Yeah. But um, yeah, basically, if, if we if we if the world in those developing economies um, did that commit to that 0.7 percent of um, foreign aid, yeah, we it'd be achievable. But yeah, it's sometimes times are tough in our own economy, so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, speak just speaking on that about uh, you know times being tough and especially the the global financial crisis, uh, which are a bunch of countries are just sort of starting to come out of now. Yeah. Um, one question for you, Dom. Why do you think uh, you know why now do you think is a good time to review these goals or to produce you know a show like this, which examines uh, how these goals have progressed thus um, far? I think because like, personally, in my mind, I think because because of that zero point seven percent, I think it's you hear that number and it's it's very achievable. Um, when you consider sort of maybe like I think America's a good example, um, how much they perhaps like allocate to military and stuff like that. If uh, I, th- I think we can always make room in our taxes and whatnot for to make zero point seven percent, I think it's very achievable and that we've we're yet to a lot of the developing economies are, are yet to commit to that and I guess that we're yet to sort of maybe. Um, campaign to our politicians to let us know that that's kind of what we want, that we think those, um, those at, le- at least meeting 0.7% of our foreign aid to try and meet the Millennium Development Goals is important. So, and that with five years to go, that we've sort of, a lot of developing economies are still, including Australia, yet to achieve that. I think we sort of, we need to evaluate sort of how high up on our priorities this, this should be to, um, to um, yeah, achieving those, those goals, which are possibly quite achievable if we... Um, if we do raise foreign aid to 0.7%. Yeah, and do you think that uh, generally, how would you rate the level of awareness just amongst the, the general public about these goals and what this project was all about? Low. I, I'd say um, most people that I've mentioned um, do, doing a doing a radio show with um, Dan Pedrick about the Millennium Development Goals. Yep, what's what, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much the response you get. Would you agree? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. I think um, there's there's probably you know some people have a fair indication of at least what they are. Um, from my personal standpoint, I mean, we, we were discussing this before the show. Neither of us are you know super experts in this field, but I think that um, it's important. It's the kind of thing, like you were saying, if you're looking at a total percentage of foreign aid or even just a focus on uh, on making these goals and development a priority. Yeah, I think it's pretty important that. Everybody, not just people who are, you know, involved in development studies yeah. or you know specialists in this field, 
or um, you know, working in foreign aid. I think everybody really needs to have some awareness of um, the stuff that's going on in our world yeah. and the inequalities of the world yeah. as it is at the moment. And it's only with that kind of uh, large-scale support that any real change is probably going to be made. Yeah. And um, definitely not suggesting that uh, these couple of you know shows that we do are going to make <laughs> an enormous difference. But I think uh, what what maybe maybe a couple of people will listen to them and um, and look into the goals. Yeah. And uh, you know that that could help. I think the more people who are sort of looking towards these yeah. and um, and drawing attention to them, the better. Yeah. I suppose you could also say um, that in order to achieve these massive goals, like the the scale that that this needs to be achieved on is huge mm. achievable but huge but at the same time the the sort of um the motivation to achieve that will come from the grassroots will come from voters saying this is this is important sort of thing mr politician who represents me in parliament please please put this on the agenda to, to do something mm. and i guess the the, the post-mortem from uh when the the time period has elapsed yeah. and the goals are finished it'll be an interesting time to look at yeah. what's what's been achieved and what hasn't yeah and i think that's going to be really useful in dictating how you know we're going to look into the future of development yeah and maybe looking at um you know what what goals worked well what didn't work well what trends we've noticed um of those if we take it across the whole period yeah and then i think that's going to be pretty important in dictating what kind of policies go forward after that yeah absolutely Um, yeah beautiful all right, well, um, coming up after this, we'll touch on the very first goal, which is eradicate um, extreme poverty and hunger, which we'll be touching on throughout the rest of the show. Um, throughout the show today, we'll be um, exploring the various targets um, within um, that goal. Um, within each of the um, learning development goals, um, there are certain targets. Um, for the goal one, the targets sort of cover quite broadly extreme poverty, employment and hunger. And uh, we'll follow that up with our interview for the week. Uh, and just close out the program, we'll see how we're progressing on the uh, the first goal of eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. You're listening to MDG with Dom and Dan. And a decade ago, at the dawn of a new millennium, we set concrete goals to free our fellow men, women and children from the injustice of extreme poverty. You're listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals. You're listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Don. Uh, first up, uh, we're covering today on our first program, uh, Goal 1. Naturally, Goal 1 goes with the first program, as, as, as one would imagine. Um, goal 1 of the Millennium Development Goals being eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Um, as we alluded to um, prior to our break, the our goals are divided into various targets. To, um, to measure each goals, um, the first one being um, half the proportion of people living on less than $1 a day uh, achieve decent employment for... Sorry, target um, B is uh, achieve decent employment for women, men and young people and target C within our first goal being um, half the proportion of people who suffer from hunger. Um, Dan, straight off the bat, I always find it interesting that um, it's got quite like a, a strict definition but... Just as, as you've said before, you, you don't consider yourself to be a, um, a super... It, we should say Dan's, Dan's studying a master's in international relations. Is that, is that okay to say? Yeah, that's, that's factual. But I, I think, I think as, as we've alluded to, that that also makes you a student sort of thing. We're, we're, all, we're all learning. Like I, I myself am by no means like any sort of expert on development or anything like that. So what is 
your understanding of extreme poverty, the, the definition of, as opposed, as opposed to just poverty as a whole? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the, 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 the line that we hear quite often for extreme poverty is um, people who are living on um, you know, a certain yep. amount of money per day. Yep. So less than um, a dollar a day is mm-hmm. kind of extreme, extreme yep. poverty. I think basically to, to kind of illustrate... Um, Obviously, there's just, there's just poverty. You could you could Google poverty and you, you'd imagine kind of what you would find. Mm. But then there's sort of definitions of extreme poverty being that definition of living under a dollar a day. I think it's now been raised to a dollar twenty-five a day. Inflation, inflation, <laughs> bloody inflation. <laughs> um, the rationale behind that though is that were you to live on two dollars a day, which is obviously not much more, but that difference. And I think I wish I'm sure we'll have some stats um, in front of us, but um, the amount of people living on both two dollars a day and a dollar a day in this world is we're talking billions in a in a in a world of six billion people. We've got um, at the moment still uh, one point four billion people living uh, on under a dollar. Uh, living on under a dollar, a dollar twenty five. Yeah, so one per day. That's 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 a lot. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, on two dollars a day, um, you would basically be able to not only sustain, like, grow enough sort of agriculture to sustain yourself you would also be able to 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 market that you would have more than you would kind of eat what have you you'd actually be able to sell that and sort of make a living and actually kind of improve your living um if that makes sense but on a dollar 25 a day or under you're actually just eating each day and or, or, or less probably most of the time so you can never really improve your lot in life you're always you're always going to be there. There's no way of kind of improving without external assistance. So, mm. um, yeah, so that's an interesting way of, of kind of looking at it. Um, so, yeah, the I think it's interesting to sort of observe um, the various ways in how we can sort of achieve it. I, I know I've, I've talked about this guy kind of at length, Dan, and I think you think I've... I, 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 I kind of respect your, your scepticism for my... Um, for my interest in um, Jeffrey Sachs, yep. who's actually the, I think he's the special advisor to the UN Secretary General. Um, and had a key role in the, the drafting of um, these goals yeah. at the summit. Yeah. yeah. So he's currently also, um, he's the director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. But um, yeah, he, he he's also, been, I think he was the director of Millennium Promise, which was, I think it was that organisation kind of roughly kind of was looked at how to achieve those goals, but that was while banking... No, sorry, the previous UN Secretary General, um, Kofi, Kofi um, Black with Two Sugars, Anan, um, <laughs> was uh, Secretary General, and it's now um, Ban Ki-moon from Korea. But um, yeah, basically, um, uh, one of my favourite books, as you know, Dan, is um, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. We can, it, it, that's just kind of like just a paperback that you'd get from your regular bookshop. But his... His um, theory, I guess, is one of differential diagnosis, he, he terms it, which I think his wife is a surgeon, and basically that's a, a medical term um, for kind of um, kind of diagnosing various kind of ailments of particular economies, and um, he kind of applies geography to that, that certain parts of the world are just kind of bound to be um, poverty. I think, like, Central Africa is one of them, a combination of, like, disease and what have you, and that basically the, uh, the, the way of kind of achieving the Millennium Development Goals and kind of bringing people out of extreme poverty is one of he likens it to a ladder in that when people um, are on two dollars or more a day or basically at a point where they're above extreme poverty they're they actually they have a rung on the ladder and they're able to climb themselves up 
But in, for most third world countries, they're, when they're living under a dollar a day, they actually can't get their hand on the first rung. And until a country um, is able to get their hand on the first rung and climb up from there, they're always going to live in extreme poverty. So, And the only way those countries can get out of that is basically by um, yeah, external aid. Hmm. So I guess um, Sachs is... He's an economist. Yep. Sachs. And uh, a lot of his theories around the base... He has theories yeah, on the basis of um, geography and yeah. you know other, other factors affecting... Um, societies, but a, a lot. Of, would it be fair to say um, a lot of his theories are on the basis of increasing foreign aid as being key? Uh, pr- pretty much just to um, to reach the zero point seven percent thing. Uh, generally, mm. not generally, yeah. Because mm. I guess there's some people who um, would argue, like Sachs has definitely got his his critics. William Easterly, love Sachs, love Sachs. Get on the Easterly and watch that. Watch them, those two just bash it out. <laughs> so essentially, a- a- anything uh, Sachs says, essentially is like wrong. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh uh-uh. uh It's kind of his his kryptonite. His kryptonite. It's arch nemesis. Yeah, nemesis. If I can speak properly, um, but I guess there's, there's different theories in terms of what can actually help increase this. Um, so this goal that we've got, uh, looking at this first target, which is halving the number of people. Uh, who are going to be living on less than a dollar a day. Yeah. Do you think that if we increased uh, globally, yeah. all the all the developed countries increased yeah. to that uh, 0.7 yeah. limit, um, this would be achievable? Yeah, I think, um, like, again, we'll, like I said, we'll touch on the um, how we're going sort of in terms of um, actually the progress of the goals, but I think this one is actually done pretty... like done pretty well so far I, th- I think they might actually end up halving it but obviously yep. even just halving like extreme poverty that still leaves like another half a billion or a billion sort of to go sort of thing so i, th- I think just straight off the top of my head I-, I could be wrong i think there might be that them almost might have be on the track to achieve it but yeah still that still lives a lot of people living in extreme poverty and um yeah that's so it's not too, that's not, not, not too good yeah so it looks like this goal um or this particular target is one that's going to be achieved by 2015 um so the starting level in 1990 was 1.8 billion people in the world yeah uh who were living on less than a dollar 25 a day or or when this began one dollar a day inflation uh yep (laughs) uh it's been uh brought down to 1.4 billion yeah um actually sorry that was uh the level at um 2005 yeah um, and it's been brought down a little bit more since then. What they're thinking is it probably will be achieved, um, which is going to leave still 920 million people yeah. living on less than a dollar a day, yeah. um, which would be a success for this yeah. goal. Um, yeah. That would be meeting the goal of, of halving. Yeah. Keep, keeping in mind it's halving the proportion, not the actual am- yeah. amount. Yeah, obviously. Um, and one thing before we move on, sort of... Um, kind of would like to touch on various countries uh, kind of contrast to different countries um in Africa and how they've kind of fared um but also East Asia um we touched on this earlier is doing really well yeah and um yeah I guess that's a testament to, to China's ability to to lift their um their population um the the, the, the scale that they're doing that on is yeah it, it, it's big numbers and the, the rate that they're doing it um it's hard to get your head around 
But just kind of want to look at um, just two countries just very quickly. One is um, Tanzania, which would not be kind of the, the least developed country in, in Africa. Not but at, at the same time, um, according to the statistics that we have, um, and I'm sure it's very hard to actually kind of to look into these things in uh, sorry to, to measure these things rather in Africa but that Tanzania has um, kind of like a East African um, state um, has the highest percentage of population living under a dollar twenty five a day but kind of wanted to contrast that with Ghana which is pretty much on their way to, to lifting themselves out of almost like third world status and almost on the cusp of being second world they've um, Ghana's kind of basically they very much have their hand on that rung so to speak yeah um, so yeah it's kind of it, I think it's interesting that while Africa is sort of, um, you know, it's uh, ha- has a bad reputation, I guess not not a bad reputation, but um, things things look pretty glum. That there's definitely those examples of places like Ghana. Um, I think Botswana is another fantastic example um, within Africa. Probably quite a few actually. Namibia is another one. There's quite there's a handful of examples, but probably only just a handful um, where yeah things things can get on the right track, and it's not just it's not just things aren't all glum, you know. In sub-Saharan Africa, in terms of um, that sort of thing, hmm. and all, all those countries are pretty much got uh, maybe like an economic growth of maybe like four or five percent, like across the board sort of thing. So that's um yeah, that's positive. Encouraging. I think um just in terms of this particular first target, what we have seen is um a lot of the the overall because the proportion that we're taking in terms of halving is is a global one. Yeah. So um. At the same time that we could potentially meet this goal by 2015, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, there's, there's going to be certain countries that really haven't improved significantly. Yeah. It's definitely not going to be an even across the board um, reduction yeah. in um, total you know, number of people in extreme poverty. So we have seen a massive, massive decrease in, um, in those levels uh, in East Asia. Yeah. Um, so East Asia is sort of uh, well surpassed already their uh, their goal yeah um which they they sort of started at the uh, the 1990 level of um 60 percent um of the population living uh on less than a dollar 25 a day um they're down um at the 2010 um last year sort of the review of these goals they're down to sort of um 16 percent um whereas a lot of other countries have made some improvements or or, sorry regions have made some improvements but nowhere near this the level of yep. um of sort of uh, Eastern Asia. Yeah. So overall, it's it's it, that's that's one of the goals that we're looking like we're on track on. But um yeah, again, extreme poverty is a very interesting one, and in that um yeah, it still still leaves a lot of people in in that state of extreme poverty. Um, coming up on the other side of this break, uh, we'll be looking at the the second target within our first goal of um, eradicating extreme poverty in Hungary, hunger. Uh, that target being achieve decent employment for women, men and young people. That's coming up after this uh, quick short break. You're listening to MDG with Dan and Dom, a look at the Millennium Development Goals. The prospects are mixed at best. There are many countries in Asia that may be able to lift millions out of poverty. In Africa, very few countries at this stage are on track to meet these targets. You're listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium, De- the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Don. Uh, t- on today's show, we're looking at our goal one of the Millennium Development Goals, that being um, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Um, just looking at the second target within uh, the first goal, uh, which is achieve decent employment for uh, women, men and uh, young people. Um, Dan, overall, how are we, just, just before we, we kick into things, how are we, how are we looking in terms of... Um, 
in terms of the progress on that. It, it is like we, we said before, we, we're looking pretty good with the um, extreme poverty um, uh, target, but how, how we're looking for um, this, impl- this particular employment target? Um, not as good. Yeah, I'd say just uh, looking across, I guess, a few different sources and just generally at it. Yeah. Um, do you find I don't know this particular target for achieving decent employment? Um, I don't know. Do you find this this target a little bit vague in its yeah in the way that it's yeah. sort of yeah? It seems. Um, I would like to know actually how that how they kind of measured decent. Um, with the scrubbing toilet bowls is 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 considered decent. Maybe I'm not sure, but um, it also seems quite ambitious. I think. Yeah. Also, um, like achieving basic, basically, it's saying achieving employment for almost everyone, if possible. Mm. And we also have sort of progress kind of t- targets within that target. But um, I think it's a very interesting one. My personal interest in this, like, in, I guess, in achieving it, is microfinance. I don't. I don't. I, it's a very. I guess. Um, like we touched on Jeffrey Sachs's kind of theories before, and obviously they have, have its skeptics, and I think microfinance has its skeptics as well. But um. I think it's like particularly in South Asia, um, Bangladesh is probably the most prominent example where microfinance has had a fantastic kind of successes there. Uh, the Grameen Bank, um, run by a guy called Muhammad Yunus, who's actually I think he's actually um, basically been indicted by the Bangladeshi government. But that's again that's it's not, <laughs> it's not a hint or there. I, 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 that's basically meant to be like a bit of a bit of a corruption beat up. But that's again that's going off topic. But um, his organisation kind of pioneered the use of microfinance there, which um, basically is offering loans to people who are so poor that they otherwise would have no access to loans. They're very tiny loans, but um, they're they're achieved by um, basically like groups of women. They're often um, only, like almost exclusively offered to because they've got a higher rate of um, actually kind of paying them back. And um, so offering those loans to um, to groups of women and uh, that kind of that group, I guess, um, that group peer pressure kind of... Um, Kind of compels people to, to to pay those loans back, and and they can kind of rise above what we were discussing before of that, um, that not just sustaining yourself on living under a dollar a day, it allows you to sort of make enough sort of um, maybe handicrafts or or whatever um sort of um, goods uh, they might might be making in agriculture to actually make more than just to, to sustain themselves and actually market those those goods and services. Um, so yeah, so I, I find that personally like an interesting. Um, method of kind of self-employing um, people in, in the third world. But yeah, yeah. again, it sort of, it does have its, its skeptics because in some cases, um, microfinance has kind of gone wrong, I mm. guess. Um, Dan, what have what you sort of made of made of this this target in general, I guess, achieving uh, decent employment for women, men and young people? Well, um, like you said, it's, it's definitely an ambitious one. Uh, and I think that uh, it's one that got pretty heavily hit by the GFC. Yeah. Um, so if we look across whole uh, regions as a whole, um, there's definitely going to be individual countries that we can um, say have had some success yep. uh, in, in these areas. If we look across the regions as a whole, um, there hasn't been huge improvement yep. in a lot of them. Um, I'm just looking at a graph here that sort of compares uh, 98 levels to um, 2009 levels mm-hmm. uh, in terms of um, employment versus population. Yeah, uh, And... Most of them are, are sitting at very similar levels. Yeah. Um, I think prior to the JFC, uh, overall, there was some improvement in employment levels, but yeah. a lot of jobs were lost, um, you know, globally, even yeah. though this was, I guess, a, a crisis of the rich. Yeah. Um, it has a trickle-down effect where poorer economies uh, yeah. suffer pretty badly. 
and in a lot of cases, um, that was I think I remember not shortly thereafter the um, the GFC uh, vice president of the US um, Joe Biden I think he came out and explicitly said like we're not going to meet zero point seven percent I don't know whether that's continued on since he, he made those statements but um but yeah it's, it's like I guess the developing world thinks it's been hard hit but that's obviously as you said had a massive trickle down effect so um, mm. yeah when when the when the the global kind of economy sneezes then. Yeah, the the third world really catches the flu pretty yeah. much. I think uh, a difficulty as well in, in measuring this goal effectively is the way that nations classify employment. Yeah. And also, as you were saying, the term decent employment, yeah. I think, is a difficult one. Um, if we look at a country like Zimbabwe or something, um, for a long time has sort of presented their employment levels. At one point, they were presenting their employment levels at 90%. Four percent. Yeah. Um, when in reality, uh, people have suggested it was maybe close to about nine yeah. percent of the population was actually employed. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we see this in the Western world, like with politicians, yeah. uh, sort of, you know, kind of making, uh, uh, cr- coming up with creative ways to sort of slant the uh, employment figures to seem like the economy is doing better and they're, yeah. they're doing a better job of running the country. Um, so it's it's hard to tell, I think, with a lot of developing nations, the way that they're actually classifying um, employment yep. and those employment statistics overall. Yep. Um, and without you know good good data on that, it's really hard to gauge how well or you know how poorly this this goal has progressed. Yeah, no, I think it's a very interesting one sort of to to look at because yeah, I, th- I think yeah, basically a lot of it does apply, um, rely on the the success or of kind of the the developed world to sort of to flow on those those kind of jobs and stuff like that. So yeah, um, coming up to up coming up after this, we'll be looking at our third target within uh, the first goal um, of eradicating extreme poverty and hunger. That target being halving half of the proportion of people who suffer from hunger. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. In the year 2000, 189 of the world's leaders made a promise to improve the lives of the world's poorest by the year 2015. Nine years on, 1.4 billion people still live in extreme poverty. It's time for us to re-energise this movement. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium, the millennium Development Goals with uh, Dan and Dom. Uh, today's show, we're looking at the, uh, the first goal of eight of the Millennium Development Goals, uh, that being um, eradicate um, extreme poverty and hunger. Uh, the target we're looking at um, at the moment is uh, half the proportion of people who suffer from hunger. Um, Dan, how are we going on this particular goal so far, broadly? Not terribly well. Not terribly well? No. It's an interesting one because, I mean, there's a pretty, obviously, a, a strong correlation between this and the, the first target that we looked at in yeah. terms of, um, you know, halving the people who are suffering from extreme poverty. Yeah. Um, but despite the fact that the levels of um, that particular um, sub goal yep. are probably going to be met, yep. uh, it's not looking like these ones are. Yep. Um, overall, there's been sort of some reduction, but uh, since 1990. But really, the um, progress stalled pretty heavily in 2000 to 2002. Okay. Um, and also, um, once again, the GFC, which I sort of keep coming back to um, has had an effect yeah, in um, 
sort of uh, making this goal a bit of a lofty one yep. in the end. Yeah. Um, this this target, of course, um, half proportion, half the proportion of people who suffer from hunger. Um, the progress for this particular target is being um, measured by uh, the prevalence of underweight children under five years of age, um, and proportion of population below minimum level of dietary um, energy consumption. Um, I think one of the most, I guess, promising, um, just despite that we're probably not looking like we're going to um, be able to meet this particular goal, I think one of the probably more promising um, and kind of, I guess, exciting um, areas to, to, if not meet the goal, then at least sort of um, create a lot of progress in this area, I think is the sort of the technology um, of agriculture. Um, a lot of the sort of the, the most leading kind of... Um, and kind of innovative kind of uh, research institutes, I guess, uh, in the developing world have uh, been able to come up with some like pretty, pretty amazing breakthroughs with um, particularly high yield seeds. Um, so seeds that sort of um, would require less less kind of inputs like um, like water and um, fertilizer, and I, I guess they've also got um, kind of new technologies and fertilizers that allow places which traditionally would have a lot of difficulty um, in kind of growing agriculture um, to, to to do so um, in particularly sort of, um, what's, what's the word, arid, particularly arid kind of areas of um, Africa in particular. Mm. Um, uh, there have been places where harvests have been so kind of few and far between there for so long that even the soil's like depleted and, and whatnot. Um, and in a lot of cases uh, in places that were previously forested and the, that have been deforested, um, a lot of those places have been kind of over over farmed if you like and that soil again is kind of depleted and and often that when that soil is depleted it actually i guess this is a different topic but it leads to an effect where that like due to weather conditions and climate change and whatnot the soil actually kind of ends up just being blown away like and kind of creates deserts and that sort of thing Mm. and um one place i want to touch on is the, the area called the sahel yeah, which um, we've talked about sub-Saharan Africa, which kind of rolls off the tongue if you if you see it on on paper long enough. But that being kind of Africa below the Sahara, I guess we should probably just briefly kind of um, kind of define that. That being that those countries north or like either sitting on the Sahara Desert or or north of, um, are generally considered to be economically doing okay. They've very much got their hands on that 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 ladder that that rung, yeah, if you like. But all those below. Black Africa, if you if you would like to um, define it that way, because that's pretty much the way it is, um, is that area that's kind of suffering the most. And the Sahel being that kind of area, generally kind of around West Africa, um, it's kind of it sort of sits on the border of the um, the Sahara Desert, if you like. So it's sort of semi-arid, but at the same time, there's quite a substantial population living there in West Africa, and that's only going to grow in the next fifty years. Um, that's really struggling um, to yeah, with agricultural output. Um, and even in the past couple of years, um, countries like Niger, I think, is probably one of the most outstanding. They've had some food crises and famines there, and I think that's only going to be um, sort of ex- exacerbated, ex- exacerbated in the um, in the coming years. Yeah. So, um, just to give you, a, I guess, a numerical indication of um, how this figure or how this uh, goal has been progressing. Uh, if we started out with a, a baseline, and obviously a lot of these um, surveys and figures that they've done, you've kind of got to take with a grain of salt. We don't always have the latest figures. It's very, very hard to count how many people are 
hungry yeah. in the world. But um, I'm, I'm, I was only telling somebody at work yesterday, I'm, I'm chronically hungry. Yeah, exactly. I just, <laughs> I just can't find anything but sushi around my, my workplace. <laughs> um, but if we look at, I guess, the 1990 levels, um, we're looking at uh, sort of figures starting out at um, eight, uh, sorry, 817 million people yeah. um, who are sort of uh, said to be within this undernourished category or within this undernourished classification. Uh, we saw some reduction of this number uh, through the mid '90s. Uh, when we, by the time we get to sort of the year 2000, we've actually seen a bit of an, in, an increase, yeah. up to about 805 yeah. million is the figure. Uh, on the last available uh, data, which is sort of 2007, um, it's estimated to go up to about 830 million. Yeah. And um, some estimates at the moment are that uh, basically by now we might have cracked one billion. Yeah, people, okay. um, or at least uh, th- that figure has increased yeah. substantially since uh, the 2007 yeah. data. Yeah. So, just also just before we um, we move on from this particular target, I just want to touch on just I, I guess a, a sort of a um, a precedent of, of hope in this this particular area. Yep. Um, I said like technologies um, in in food, sort of agriculture and uh, seed varieties and fertilizers is kind of um, I guess is the one of the, the big keys. But also that um, in the 60s, um, India, particularly the, the arid areas of India, um, experienced what was called the Green Revolution at the time, um, which came about due to um, innovations in seed varieties and fertilisers, which basically allowed areas that were going through extreme famines um, to make good. Green, green Revolution, I think, is kind of pretty much itself explains it. So mm. in a lot of respects, that's kind of what we're looking to, to have happen, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, um, uh, so yeah, I, th- I think that's that kind of that precedent does provide some some hope in that um yeah particularly this area in West Africa which is just going to explode population wise when a lot of people um don't get fed they get pretty angry as well so I think even just from a security perspective um it's probably worth reallocating potentially some funds toward feeding some people um, if only for that reason mm. um so yeah so um coming after this break we'll be um discussing with our um interviewee for um this goal one and we'll um wrap things up with just really touching on the um the progress again of the um our goals before we we wrap up today's show of the eradication of extreme poverty and hunger the first goal of the millennium development goals you are listening to mdg a look at the millennium development goals with dan and dom I want to know, how does this happen? How is it that a, a kid dies every three seconds from extreme poverty? I don't understand how we could have let it got to that. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Today's program looking at Goal 1, the first of the um, Millennium Development Goals, looking at the end of extreme poverty. Yeah, um, and now we've got uh, our interview for this week. Uh, Dom had a chat to Hamish McKenzie, who is the Melbourne University Vision Group President and last year was a World Vision Australia Youth Ambassador. So let's listen to that chat now. So Hamish, just wanted to ask you just quickly, um, before while we get started, um, what was the seed of your kind of the humanitarian work? Like what, where the original kind of motivation um, started to, to take the path you've been taking? Sure. Um, I guess I just grew up like most other students in Australia, doing the 40-hour famine, knowing about poverty, through things like that. Um, and then when it got to the end of year 12, I was leaving school, leaving that whole part of my life, and I thought, you know, I think I want to do something a little bit more. I want to find out a little bit more about what this poverty business is. Um, so through the 40-hour famine, I applied for the Youth Ambassador Program, which is um, a thing run by World Vision, 
whereby they select one young person from each state in Australia and they send them overseas to an impoverished country that World Vision works in to experience poverty, to look at World Vision's projects and to see how the funds of the 40-hour famine are actually put into, you know, into play in the real world. So I applied for that um, at the end of year 12 um, and as luck would have it, I got through to there. So uh, in January um, of 2010, I was sent off to to Nepal to look at World Vision's projects over there for a couple of weeks um, and that started a year-long engagement with World Vision as youth ambassador going out to schools in Victoria and Tasmania talking to students about about poverty and about the 40-hour famine. That's a very prestigious position, um, the youth ambassador position. What, uh, leading, sort of leading up um, to you, like throughout your VCA, how did you sort of gain the experience to um to to get that that position like i know you've done the 40 off heaven four times um yeah what sort of experience were they kind of looking for um in in giving you that um the youth ambassador role um i'm not sure if they're really looking for experience so much as passion passion yeah, yeah. exactly like it's sort of a fine balance between being interested in the issues and being willing and able to communicate that to a large audience yeah um, you know, so they asked us to do, you know, practice speeches and stuff like that. And, you know, throughout the year, you end up speaking to a whole variety of different audiences from politicians to, you know, groups of 3,000 students to, you know, I had to speak to one group of like five-year-old kids and stuff like that. Yep. So it's just a matter of, um, you know, knowing how to communicate a message um, in a way that's convincing and actually expresses the, you know, the genuine passion that you have. Yeah. For poverty. So, so, like, so, like, your family. I guess I, I find it quite intriguing. Just, I guess, in that, um, I suppose a lot of people, a lot of males in their teens, sort of, um, I guess, at least growing up myself, kind of generally don't, don't kind of get engaged that much in sort of development and kind of the third world and that sort of um, issues like extreme poverty and extreme hunger and that sort of thing. Was it was that like in your family background to sort of to be to take an interest in those sort of things? Um, oh, look, I think you're right. I think a lot of uh, young guys don't really... Quite disappointingly. Like, yeah, yeah, know. look, a little bit. Like, particularly um, in Vision Generation, in the youth movement of yeah. World Vision, um, which I'm part of, uh, like, the gender imbalance is yeah. is really pretty obvious. I think that's two of most sort of youth poverty organisations yeah. and stuff. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a family of two boys, two girls, and I yeah. went to an all-boys school and stuff. So P- perfect equality by your parents. <laughs> well done, Mr. Mr. McKenzie. I'll pass that on. <laughs> um, but look, I guess, um, you know, going to an all-boys school, it was kind of fighting an uphill battle to try and yeah. get the poverty issue on yeah. the agenda at school and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, I don't think I'm, you know, particularly different to anyone else. I was just given yeah. the right circumstances yeah. to, you know, to pursue that interest um, a little bit further. Um, and I guess, you know, as as a young male who has had that chance, I've been really keen to try and communicate to other young guys around the state that, you know, poverty is not, um, you know, an issue for for girls or, for, yeah. you know, for someone else. Like, it's an issue that young men can really take a communicate, take an interest in. It's like you said, um, it's really kind of great, I guess, in that respect, in that it's it's an opportunity for you to sort of to, to lead, I guess. So, no, I think it's, it's excellent. Um, so tell us a little bit about your time in um, Nepal. You've obviously seen extreme poverty there firsthand. Just did some a stat just before um, we arrived here. Fifty five percent of um, the Nepalese are living on under a dollar twenty five a day, which is therefore fifty five percent of the Nepalese living in extreme poverty. How did you find um, that experience firsthand, Hamish? Yeah. Um, so we went to Nepal. There were five ambassadors that year. Yeah. Um, 
two guys, three girls, interestingly. Yeah. Um, Were they each representing a state in Australia? Each, each representing a different state. Yeah. Um, so Northern Territory and Tasmanian yeah. ACT didn't really have one. Okay. Um, so there were five of us. Um, and look, when we got there, none of us had any experience mm. in such a situation, in such a, um, a desperately impoverished country. Your, your first third world country? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the first five, ten minutes on the bus driving through Kathmandu, we filmed it all. Um, and it was absolutely shocking. Like, mm. I mean, you see kinds of, you know, ads for World Vision and stuff like that. Um, but sort of actually looking through the window at, like, you know, 13-year-old girls holding babies and knocking on the windows of the bus asking for money or food or, you know, people just sort of lying on the streets in piles of rubbish and, you know, animals just living alongside people and people drinking out of the filthy, filthy river and all sorts of things. It was a really confronting experience. Um, but to be honest, I mean, you mentioned that stat, 55% of the Nepalese are living in extreme poverty. Um, that's true, but the... The region that we spent most of our time in wasn't actually Kathmandu, the capital mm. city. We actually spent most of our time in the far west, um, in a place called Kalali, which is the poorest part of Nepal. And in Kalali, 80% of the population is living in extreme poverty. Yeah. So it's it's even worse than Kathmandu. Yeah, and I mean, some of the things in Kalali just make Kathmandu look like, you know, a luxurious holiday destination. Yeah. I guess in terms of, like, your... Like obviously your motivation for like humanitarian and development um, activities kind of already established by being um, nominated as the youth ambassador. How does kind of that experience in Nepal kind of affect you? I guess like your motivations, like it makes it such a, a visceral experience. Like what were your kind of your feelings in terms of like your your motivation for for the work that you'd already been doing? Like how did it affect that? I guess in that that visceral way. Yeah. Um, look, I've been. The Youth Ambassador thing was last year, yeah. um, and since then I've moved into a different sort of role yeah. in Vision Generation. Um, but still, like, everything that I do with World Vision is informed by my experiences yeah. in Nepal. Like, you know, meeting a couple of people, you know, staying a night in a family's village or spending an afternoon with a young girl who's yeah. spent her life in child labour, that kind of thing, it doesn't, it doesn't leave you very easily. And it's that kind of thing which really um, motivates me every morning to get yeah. up and try and tell people about it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there were so many situations in which, you know, it's getting up at 5.30 to drive into the country and I'd speak to eight schools in one day and it's just, you know, it it, it exhausts you and it wears yeah. you down. You're saying, you know, the same sorts of stories over and over again to, you know, atriums full of school kids who, you know, just want to get to recess and they don't really care and it's, you know, a Monday morning and it's freezing and no one's really interested. So, you know, c- trying to overcome all of those obstacles and try and really get through to these kids, there's very little that you can fall back on yeah. other than the knowledge that there are people back there in Nepal yep. who have no voice other than the one I give them. So, I mean, it's definitely the experiences in Nepal, um, particularly, you know, one or two individuals um, who continue to motivate me. I mean, that thing, that those stories, I definitely need to remind myself of them regularly. And I've got the photos on my wall and... You know, I revisit the footage that we took there, um, and I reread my diary all the time because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint. Like I do forget and do become complacent and all that kind, all that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, it's just a matter of um, constantly cultivating that that motivation. How, how, like you were saying, um, in visiting the schools, in in some cases, the kids are the school kids are somewhat indifferent. How do you find, um, like? In, in like that role speaking to the, the kids 
what do you find does work what, to kind of get through to them and kind of actually kind of make that change within their own heads? Like, what, what have you found has been effective in that regard? Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, I always make an effort not to sugarcoat the stories. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of the kids that we met in Nepal were younger than most of the people that I'm speaking to. So I think there's no point in in leaving out some of the worst parts of it or in making it seem better than it actually is because, you know, if we can't handle it, even just hearing about it, then what can we expect these kids overseas to actually deal with it? So, I mean, that's, that's the first part, actually, um, confronting kids with the facts of what's going on over there. The other thing um, I would say is trying to trying to put it on their level mm. so saying you know this is a 13 year old girl who's meant to be in year seven like you know you are today but she's not because she spent six years of her life um you know being a servant with a rich family in Kathmandu yeah. and you know being beaten and sexually abused all day blah 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 so by allowing them to relate to someone you know who's the same age or the same gender or in the same kind of situation as them um, I think that really gets through. Yep. And the third thing I'd say is that um, empowering them. So actually not just bombarding them with all of these sort of depressing facts and statistics and stories and stuff, um, because that can get overwhelming. Hmm. Um, but actually, you know, telling stories from my own experience as a, as a school kid um, and as a youth ambassador and saying, you know, this situation really sucks, but it's not as if it's something that we can't do anything about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a- appealing to kids who might be, you know, in positions of leadership or kids who are just interested in something or, you know, kids who, who might be affected by what I'm saying, allowing them some sort of avenue for taking action. Yeah. You mentioned that um, at the end of your term last year of um, Youth Ambassador, you um, entered into uh, the Vision Group, so you're now leading the Melbourne University um, Vision Group. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about World Vision's um, Vision Group initiative and sort of what that role entails for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so Vision Generation, as I said before, the National Youth Movement of World Vision Australia, um, it's essentially a network of young people all across the country. Um, there's thousands of us in every city, you know, you know, hundreds of schools and universities and churches and stuff, and we operate through vision groups. Yeah. So, you know, in your local c- c- community, if you're a school kid, it's in your school. If you're a university student, it's in y- your uni. Um, we form groups of like-minded individuals who want to take action against extreme poverty and injustice. And we do that using World Vision's support and to support World Vision's campaigns. So we take, you know, local and replicable actions that raise awareness of the issues of of poverty and the surrounding issues and stuff um, to try and broaden the audience um, that the, the poverty message can actually reach and to try and sort of create a social movement that you know, really seeks to eradicate poverty. Yeah. That's a really fantastic um, initiative as far as I'm concerned and for my sort of involvement that I've had kind of briefly with Fujian groups just in um, engaging young people and sort of, I guess, giving them a place to um, to kind of follow their interests in that, that area. So I'd, I personally, like, really highly recommend um, Fujian for those young people that do want to kind of get involved in, in all things humanitarian and development and whatnot. I think it's a, it's a really great place to go. And you're leading the Melbourne University one, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We just started cool. up this year, so we're... We're booming. Cool, fantastic. So if you're going to Melbourne University, do get involved in the um, uh, Melbourne Uni Vision Group. Um, she wanted to also discuss your um, attendance at the Make Poverty History Summit in Canberra. Um, how did you? I know you personally met with um, four um, MPs, federal MPs. How did you? How was that experience? The um, the Make Poverty History Summit in Canberra. 
Yeah, look, that was pretty exciting. Um, so that was last year, obviously, leading up to the election. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a pretty electric time with, you know, a thousand young people up there, all yeah. under the Make Public History banner, <coughs> all creating chaos on the lawns of Parliament House to try and get through to the politicians. Because you guys performed at a number of stunts, is that right? Uh, we did, yeah. We... Yeah, we've we've done a couple of things. Um, so there was there was actually a couple of trips up to Canberra. There was the Make Poverty History one, and then Vision Generation did their own one. Yeah. A, a few weeks later, we did all sorts of things. Was like five to was it survive to five? Survive to five, um, which is um, trying to get the government to increase the health budget. Yeah. Within our aid programs, so yeah. Kids don't die before five years old. Yeah. Survive to five. Um, so we do all sorts of stuff like we dressed up as babies and. Um, you know, waltzed around Canberra trying to get people to sign postcards um, and on the lawns of Parliament House, the same kind of thing. Uh, we'd hold up huge signs to spell out Make Poverty History and yeah. we brought politicians down to hear what we had to say and stuff like that. Um, and, for instance, um, just recently in February of this year, another Vision Generation group went up to Canberra, this time asking the government to take action against human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So we were all dressed up as slaves and we were singing out the front of Parliament House um, and we actually got Kevin Rudd down and presented to him with 110,000 petitions that we'd, that we'd developed over the past year or so, um, asking the government to take action on human trafficking. Fantastic. So I mean, those are examples of the kind of political campaigning that we were doing. Um, but just in terms of um, meeting politicians and, you know, trying to communicate the message to yeah. them, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different ballpark. Like, um, last year we were trying to get the government to raise the foreign aid budget to 0.7% yeah. of our gross domestic product. How did you guys go with that one? I was very curious about this. Um, look, we didn't necessarily succeed as yeah. such, as in it's not going to get to 0.7%. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, we spoke to every politician on both sides of the House um, you know, in personal meetings, one-on-one, yeah. with young people saying, this is something that we really care about and something that we really should be doing. Do the MPs seem like they engage in that, that topic, um, 0.7? Oh, look, it depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely not, you know, one party's for it and one party's against it kind of thing. It's definitely, it definitely depends on the individual politician. Yeah. Um, some people are really supportive. Um, what, like, just the Australian government, um, just yeah. alone, like, what's kind of, I guess, their excuse, if you like, for, um, for not reaching 0.7%? Just, yeah. just from your own dealings, like, what, what's, what's, what's their rationale for not meeting that being? A um, couple things. One thing they always bring up is the effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So, um, there was a bit of a... Of the aid? Of the aid. Yeah. That there was a bit of an uproar last year about, you know, whether or not the aid program is actually going to communities in the developing world, or whether it's actually going to high-paid, you know advisors and executives and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a big investigation of where it's actually spent um, being done at the moment to try and make sure that it's getting to where it's needed. And so the line that the politicians were bringing out was, we're not going to increase it yeah. until we know that it's actually going to the right spot because there's no point in spending money for the sake of spending money, yeah. which, which is a completely fair thing yeah. to say. And I can completely support um, anything that tries to increase the effectiveness of the aid. Um, but the other big thing was that um, they were saying that since the global financial crisis, um, Australia's budget is, you know, a little bit slim. Mm. And we did promise to get to 0.7%, but the circumstances have changed and we're probably not going to be able to get there. Yeah. That's just the reality of, you know, of the situation. Um, to be honest, I don't really buy that line. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the facts just don't support it. Like, Australia's economy came through the global financial crisis better than most other countries. Yeah. Um, and yet, even in somewhere like the United Kingdom, which was devastated by the financial crisis, 
the government has come out there and they're slashing billions of dollars off their budget, but they've that that they've ring fenced aid and said we are not going to um, touch the aid budget. We are going to keep the aid budget to zero point seven because yeah. we made a commitment to the world's poor, and we're not going to go back on that. Do, do you get a sense like that? There's like perhaps a fear from the MPs that like their electorate. It isn't something the zero point seven percent lifting that um, lifting it to that aid um, figure. Do you, do you have a sense that they're fearful that their electorate kind of does, does doesn't want that? Is that yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing for a thousand young people to come up and say this is what we yeah. want, but um, it's very different to get the rest of the twenty million people in Australia to actually agree to it. Um, and I mean, I met with my local politician, my local federal politician, yeah. um, sometime last year on this very issue. And the one thing that she said to me was that she just genuinely does not believe that my electorate cares enough about it yeah. for her to support it. Um, and I mean, that, that was quite quite confronting for me. Yeah. It's <laughs> something that I would presume, you know, most people would support. Yeah. Um, and really, you know, she can't really know that. I can't really know that yeah. unless we did like an individual poll. But I think definitely it's... It's a tough gig trying to convince an Australian public who, you know, many of whom are going through hard times or um, have have things which um, the government definitely could be doing to help them to to support sending billions of dollars overseas to other people that will never meet and will never be able to say thank you. Um, So definitely, things that there's a huge fear on behalf of the government and the opposition that it's just not a viable policy. Yeah. there's a famous quote, I can't remember who said it, but it goes, there's no votes in aid. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what both parties at the moment are are really proving. Fantastic. Um, just or just finally, just wrapping up, Hamish, just curious, um, with the like the stunts, I, I noticed just from um, receiving the, the VG newsletter that often the stunts like flash mobs and stuff like that and the various kind of things that you guys got up to in the, the um, Make Poverty History Summit in Canberra and also the... What, five to survive to five. Survive to five. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, do, do you find like the um, like stunts like that and other kind of if you have you have been involved in any um, directly in Melbourne like flash mobs and that sort of thing? Um, have you found like that they're generally like effective in sort of in creating awareness like in the public and, and also to MPs? Um, yeah, I think it depends how you do them and yeah. what you're really going for. Um, for instance, our slave stunt where we dressed up as slaves and sang to the politicians. You make that, them run, so that's pretty... <laughs> that's effective. That's true, yeah. Got, that's, got the PM's attention. That's, yeah, like, that's what we were going for. We were trying to make, a, like, a spectacle so that he could come yeah. out and, you know, have a good photo opportunity and stuff like yeah. that so that it would be an attractive option for him rather than just, you know, 30 young people dressed in dressed in cities and, you know, not looking like anything particularly impressive. Yeah. So in that kind of situation, that stunt was, was really effective. Um... But if you're going to do a stunt, like, in the middle of the city or something, you're not necessarily doing it for, you know, attracting politicians or anything like that. Yeah. Like you're doing it to try and spread a message and communicate something. Um, and I think, like, an example of a really successful one was the Stand Up for Poverty stunt yeah. last year, where there was, like, I know, 300 people who met outside the State Library just here in the city in Melbourne. Um, and we marched from the State Library to the Town Hall. Yeah. Um, and we had African drummers and we had lots of musical instruments and stuff like that. Um, and then we read out a pledge made by the governments of the developed world to increase foreign aid. Um, and we all had our Make Poverty History signs standing up there in Burke Street Mall. Um, sorry, not the town hall, uh, the GPO. Yeah. So we standing outside Burke Street Mall at the GPO. Um, and that was super effective because we had thousands of people see us and you know, see the Make Poverty History sign and hear the, the pledge being read out. And that was a, a great 
photo opportunity that you know got into the media, and that was a worldwide event, the Stand Up for Poverty Day. So that kind of thing. Um, it's really simple. All you need is you know people and random pots and pans to bang. Yeah. Um, and you know loud voices raising the awareness of something which otherwise people wouldn't be thinking about. Thank you so much for um for giving us your time tonight. Today you. Yep. That's so that's still active. Um, sort of. I'd stick putting together some of that website, but I've I've noticed it's since um not as heavily involved. But yeah, if they would like to get involved um at Melbourne University, if you're a Melbourne University student, and you'd like to get involved with um yep. VGM, please get in contact um with Hamish. Definitely. She's the land leader in the uh, the World Vision Vision groups there. Hamish uh, Mackenzie, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Cheers. I do not believe it's too late to turn the tide around. It is not an easy task. It will take focus, application, and sustained commitment. And it requires action, action on the part of all countries, both rich and poor. It requires developing countries to live up to the commitment that all states made to adopt comprehensive development strategies. And that brings us to an end to the um, the first instalment of um, MDG, um, a look at the Millennium Development Goals. Um, today's program looking at uh, Goal 1, Eradicate Extreme Poverty and Hunger. Again, just quickly looking at the um, the three targets um, within that particular goal, that being um, half the proportion of people living on less than $1 a day, also um, achieve decent employment for women, men and young people, and also half the proportion of people um, who suffer from hunger. So within this goal, we've had... Um, yeah, it's where there's progress, but perhaps not the as much progress as we would have wanted. Um, the number of people living under the international poverty line of a dollar twenty-five a day did decline from one point eight billion to um, one point four um, between nineteen ninety and two thousand five. And um, also the proportion of people living in extreme poverty in developing regions dropped from forty six percent to twenty seven percent, which is on tra- track to meet um, that particular extreme poverty target um, globally. Um, Dan, I guess something different could be said for the um, achieving decent employment for women, men and young people, of course, because of the um, the global financial crisis. Definitely. Um, so still a lot of disparity in terms of um, employment, especially for women, as we discussed earlier in the show. Yeah. Um, and the economic crisis had profound effects on uh, developing regions. Um, and it's estimated that about an extra 64 million people were pushed into extreme poverty in 2010 yeah. um, as a result, um, sort of a carry-on effect of that financial crisis, yeah. um, which I guess was at its worst in 2008 yeah. and also in 2009. So, um, yeah, there's been some progress overall for the goal, um, yeah. but there's still certainly a lot of work to do and yeah. um, we're a long, long way from eradicating extreme poverty and yeah, hunger. definitely. And obviously... It's um, often a lot of one that the, the, um, the person on the street sort of wonders how do we end extreme poverty and, and as well as hunger and, and the solutions are simple sort of thing like the, the solutions there for the world and they've, they've committed to them um, at the Millennium Summit in 2000 and have continued to do so in, um, in the years since um, in providing 0.7% um, of their GDP which would um, go towards um, yeah, any extreme poverty via, via the, um, the measures, um, not the measures, sorry, the, the methods rather um, within the... The Millennium Development Goals, including Goal 1, Eradicate Extreme Poverty and Hunger. So thank you very much for listening. This has been uh, the first instalment of MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom.